0: This is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is from James chapter 5 verses 13 to 20. It's the reading for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Proper 21 in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be one of the readings for September 26, 2021. As this letter authored by James comes to a close, we hear in these final verses what it means for the Christian community to prevail in the midst of suffering, joy, and even sickness. And as this particular letter wraps itself up in these closing verses, we find that all of the the work that has been put in by the writer to describe how our faith must find its doing to come together in some very practical ways. And so as we close out uh, the book of James, we want to look first at verses 13 to 15, where we read about this doing of the faith in terms of doing for ourselves and what that might look like. And the writer describes three different situations here, the first bad, the second one good, the third one bad again. And it follows the same kind of format in all three of these, beginning at verse 13, that there's a question and then there is a remedy. And so let's look at each of these three very quickly and see what we might learn about what it is to be Christian community, even in the midst of hardship. The first question that's asked in verse 13, is any among you suffering? Then the response is, then he must pray. This notion of suffering is common in the community to whom this letter is written, whether it's James or someone writing kind of within the ethos or within the school of James, if you will. That this community is probably somewhere in the ancient Near East, more more than likely near Syria or Palestine today, and this Christian community is probably finding itself under some degree of persecution, and it's in the midst of this persecution in the early days of the second century that this letter is written to encourage the community, especially when they're in the midst of suffering, and so this is common within the community that James is written to, and. As we've learned throughout James, that the response to suffering isn't a lashing out or simply being resigned to suffering. No, the encouragement here is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. The language that comes into English is a little bit awkward. This is a a, a Greek verb that says he must pray. It's in the imperative mood or the mood of command. And what we learn here is that prayer is really an active response to suffering. Prayer is not some sort of passive or resigned way of responding to suffering. Prayer is a very active response to suffering, and we'll learn more about that as we move through this closing section of the letter of James. But take note that it's a response directed toward God that the response that we're to have in the midst of suffering is to pray, and that that prayer is directed toward God. God is at the center or the object of that response. The writer goes on to ask the second question, is anyone cheerful? Then it says he is to sing praises. The same formulation here, a question and then a remedy, and that remedy to sing praises is again in the imperative mood, the mood of command. It's about being joyful, about being cheerful, not just the absence of suffering, but rather the presence of joy or cheer, and that the community here is called to sing praise, to sing its praises forth. Again, the focus is toward God. It's not toward one another necessarily within the community. It's toward God. So in both cases, whether it's suffering or cheerfulness or joyfulness, the direction is focused toward God, to sing praise and to give thanks. You see how God is deeply entwined in our response to each, both suffering and cheerfulness, in these opening two questions we find in James chapter 13. And and then a slightly more nuanced or sophisticated question in verse 14. Is any among you sick? And this notion of sick here has to do with being physically ill, So uh, there's been a lot of commentators that have tried to frame this word in terms of all the sorts of different things it could mean, but it's plain sense makes much sense here in that it is simply about those who are suffering in the midst of physical illness. And the direction, again, again, is in the imperative mood. Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins they will be forgiven him. See that the response here is much much longer than in verse 13 with the two questions that were there about suffering and cheerfulness. This one is much more detailed in terms of how we're to respond when someone among us is sick. And there's a call here that the person is supposed to engage in that there are two call for the elders of the church. Now this word for elders, presbyteros, we get words like presbyterian or to be the presbyter from this very same Greek word that means elders, not in terms of age, but in terms of status, in terms of office within the life of the church. It says, bring the elders of the church. And there's a shift here in language away from James chapter one, where We read about the assembly of the community, and it uses the Greek word for synagogue. Here, at the end of James, we've shifted to a different word. It's ekklesia. It's the word for church. So he must call for the elders of the church, not the assembly. And here's what they're supposed to do when they arrive. The actions are contemporary with each other. They're to do both at the same time, to pray and to anoint That the anointing, in many ways, the way this is framed grammatically, is that the anointing is part of the prayer. So praying is the dominant act in this scene, and then there's to be this anointing with oil. Now, the uses of oil in the ancient world were sophisticated and long, far longer than we can cover today, but just suffice to say, basically two different ways oil was used. Either it was used with medicinal purposes, or it was used in a sacramental sort of purpose. Medicinal purposes could be all sorts of applications to wounds or different types of inflammation where oils may be helpful. And then there's the sacramental use. In other words, it represents some form of grace or gift that might be upon a person. The idea here in this particular text is that it certainly may be medicinal, but probably what the writer has intended here is that this be much more sacramental in its nature. Part of the reason throughout scripture, from beginning to end, oil is used as a symbol of anointing is because of oil staying power. Oil, once it's applied to something, stays put for a long time. And so it has this uh, uh, characteristic of being always present, that it doesn't evaporate easily or disappear easily. And so it really represents the staying power, the sticking power of God's presence upon the person. It symbolizes this this abiding presence of God with an individual. And so the elders are to come and to pray and to anoint and to do so in the name of the Lord. The Lord. Again, the name of the Lord here in James is much like what we read in some of the Gospels. Is that The idea here is that Praying in the name of the Lord means that we're, in a sense, beholden to Christ's will or desire or direction, that the intentionality of that which these elders are to pray for should be the same as the intentionality of Jesus himself. And that's what makes the prayer effective, is that it is prayed in the name of the Lord. In other words, it's prayed within the will, desire, and direction that God has in that particular moment. And the effect is this to restore the one that's sick and the Lord will raise them up. It's not a transaction. Rather, something mysterious is happening in which the prayer of healing is about the abiding presence of God even in the midst of illness. It says in the text that even if sins have been committed, they will be forgiven. Notice the qualifier, if. If that person has committed sin, they will be forgiven him. So there's this relationship between sin and sickness, And they're somewhat intertwined. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus spends a lot of time deposing this relationship between sin and sickness, that they are not always tied together. But that does not vacate that relationship. There are some sicknesses that happen because of sin. And so what James is alluding here is that there's ways in which our behaviors and practices can receive a healing or forgiveness which can lead us then to physical healing and wholeness. Now, the key passageway here is this, is that prayer is an active and affirming response. Notice that in all three of these questions, whether it be suffering, cheerfulness, or sickness, they all involve a form of expression of praise and prayer. So often we think of prayer as capitulation. It's like I've got no other option except to pray. But what prayer does is helps us understand that the situation that we're likely in is out of our control. And prayer is a way of, of um, receiving that truth. Prayer teaches us to release the illusion of control. And it's not about being passively resigned. Prayer is active, it's alive, it's engaged, it's faithful. It's a way in which we participate in what God is doing in our midst. Prayer isn't quitting. No, prayer, in fact, is a means of engaging the most powerful remedy to the situation in which we may find ourselves. Now the writer turns the attention in verses 16 to 20 for the, the doing of the faith in this time, at this point in relationship to the community itself. And the writer continues with this issue of sin that is occurring within the life of the community. Uh, The writer says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So this same idea of prayer and healing is at work in this particular text. So the instructions are very simple. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. Very simple directives for the community to follow. That in every way, this is a pathway to healing both for the single person and for the community, that this work of confession is about humility and honesty. The the word for us in English, confession, means to agree with. And so when we confess, we're simply agreeing with, in this case, God, and even the witness of the community. Sometimes a confession can be an affirmation, like a confession of faith, and sometimes confession can be, as we often understand it, a confession of sin. Regardless of what it is, confession is a a pathway toward disclosure about safety, about openness, humility, honesty. These are all virtues that James has lifted up at length. And this is not an uncommon practice in Jewish circles. There are many Jewish communities that practice some form of communal confession together. And so in this case, it's adapted by this particular Christian community. Now one of the most interesting parts of the and words in James is where it talks about in this very same verse, verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about can accomplish much. And so this is kind of used almost like a transactional guarantee of how prayer is supposed to be used. So let's take this apart just for a moment and see if we can understand better what the writer is trying to tell us. First of all, that There's something about this prayer that's important in the second half of verse 16. It's the prayer of a righteous person, meaning that this person prays in the name of Jesus. This is back to what we've been talking about all along through James and also we find in the Gospels, is that to pray in the name of Jesus is to be rightly intended, not so much looking for the same outcome or any outcome, but the intentionality of prayer is oriented toward the glory and the magnification of God, rather than just of ourselves. But notice what the text says. Read it carefully. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. It has capacity. Note that it doesn't operate in the grammar that you find here, like a cause and effect, that if I'm righteous enough, whatever I pray for is going to happen. That's not how this is described. The prayer of a righteous person has capacity not necessity. The prayer is not about the outcome. The prayer is actually about communion with Christ, communion with each other. It's mystical in its nature. And in case we get to a place of misunderstanding this, the writer goes on in verse 17 to give us an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The writer of James uses Elijah as the example of an ordinary man. And there's a little tongue-in-cheek going on here at the end of James because Elijah is no ordinary man. So when the Jewish community were to reflect on its rich history, it, even in the, this time in which James was written, they would have undoubtedly looked upon two individuals, the Law and the Prophets, epitomized with Moses and Elijah. So Elijah is really the rock star, if you will. Of the Jewish scripture. And in this particular example, the writer is saying, look at Elijah. He's an ordinary man just like us. Well, this is kind of a humanizing way in which we can experience Elijah and that he prayed for a drought, and there was a drought, and he prayed for rain, and there was rain. And this notion of suffering and blessing ties back to the questions we looked at as we began this very section in James. Are any among you suffering? Are any among you cheerful? And so Elijah is this kind of constant force that runs through times of drought and times of rain, times of suffering and times of cheerfulness. So what the writer is inviting us to do is to help us understand that this isn't about our office or our status or even who the elders are. This is about intentionality. It's about motive, and each of us have that. Uh, Prayer is a democratizing act. It's a powerful one that releases the entire community to be in prayer. But not only does that prayer of a righteous person have an effect within the community, it has a larger effect in terms of the relationship we each have with God and with each other. And in these closing verses, the writer says, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a rich passageway in this particular text. We have a responsibility to each other. If somebody strays, we must restore. How contrary this is to the life of Christian community sometimes. So where's the context to do this? Where's the context in which we could sit with other people and talk about how our lives are, as it says in the text, if anyone strays from the truth? And what kind of context can that conversation happen? It happens in deep spiritual friendships, enduring love between people. It says that it covers a multitude of sins. It has this potent power if we can find a way into this kind of Christian community transformational things can happen that happen nowhere else. And that's the key passageway for us here. That true Christian community is redemptive. It's healing. It's prayerful. And that these virtues are formed in churches and Christian community by deep, rich discipleship. They are not accidental things. They are intentional. It takes time, effort, work, and focus to create Christian community that is redemptive, healing, and prayerful. Churches lacking the context or the ecosystem for redemption, healing, and prayerfulness, they're just a mirage of true community. Our work is to cultivate these places, not only for ourselves, but for our witness to the world around us, that we might be perceived as a peculiar community, a different kind of community, where authenticity and humility and transparency are the hallmarks of who we are. That's it for this week. I am very thankful for the book of James and the teaching it brings to us about how to live in authentic community, even in moments of bleakness and suffering, that there is a power at work in our midst, drawing us into deeper communion with God and with one another. I want to finally thank the Reverend Deborah Brady and for the people at the First United Methodist Church of Modesto. They're concluding their series in the book of James, and they've been using this podcast as a part of their sermon series throughout the last several weeks. I hope all of you at Modesto First UMC are blessed by passages, and I hope that you have been blessed by experiencing the sermons each and every week with this podcast being a companion along with those sermons. For now, I bid you all grace.